In Mary Shelley's novel, The Last Man, the protagonist, one of the few survivors of a plague, searches for meaning in a world of loss, concluding that there is but one solution to the intricate riddle of life, to improve ourselves and contribute to the happiness of others. In 2022, as COVID-19 lingers on, the climate threat looms larger and war returns to Europe. There seems to be no answer to when this era, defined by loss, will end. And many of us are finding that making sense of the intricate riddle of life and extracting meaning out of adversity is one of the things that art does best. In this season of In These Times, we talk to scholars, musicians and poets, and other members of creative communities to explore the link between making art and making meaning, and how creativity shines a light on that way out of adversity, past and present. In these times, knowledge is more important than ever. In this episode, we speak with a scholar of English literature about another era defined by loss, the Black Death of the 1300s, and how authors reported and responded to it. Welcome to episode two, Joy and Plague. In 1346, bubonic plague began to spread through northern Africa and Eurasia. In seven years, it had become the most fatal pandemic recorded in human history, killing between 75 and 200 million people. Hence, the countless numbers of people who fell ill, both male and female, were entirely dependent upon either the charity of friends, who were few and far between, or the greed of servants, who remained in short supply, despite the attraction of high wages, out of all proportion to the services they performed. That's David Wallace, Judith Rodin Professor of English and Comparative Literature, reading from Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron. Boccaccio's father was a merchant and official of the city of Florence in 1348, as the Black Death was tearing through Europe. Half of the population of the city died, including Boccaccio's father. Wallace's area of study centers on medieval literature, which covers the time of the Great Plague. His many books include Geoffrey Chaucer, A New Introduction and a Literary History of Europe from 1348. In 2019, he received the Sir Israel Gallants Prize from the British Academy for his lifetime contribution into the study of Chaucer in medieval Europe. So things in that play got so bad that people became sort of unhinged and you can just sell the whole society is sort of falling apart um, in a culture of death, which in Florence... Uh, took away 50% of the population. The Florentines were living in a republic in which they tried to take care of everybody. So everybody flooded in from the the countryside and they tried to bake bread and feed everybody. Uh, But the increase in numbers of persons led to more people dying. Whereas in the north of Italy, in Milan, they had a, a despotic society, a dictatorial society, in which the Duke simply ordered anybody who had plague-like symptoms to be bricked into their house and they would just be left there and they would die in the house but the mortality rate there was about 15%. So there are different responses to the pandemic uh, in different parts of Italy. Boccaccio wrote the Decameron immediately after the plague devastated Florence. In it, he testified to the suffering that took place. He talks very poignantly about what death is like and the scariest thing for him is that people died alone which for a medieval person is the scariest thing of all. It had once been customary, as it is again nowadays, for the women, relatives and neighbours of a dead man to assemble in his house in order to mourn in the company of women who had been closest to him. 
Moreover, his kinfolk would foregather in front of his house along with his neighbours and various other citizens. And there would be a contingent of priests whose numbers varied according to the quality of the deceased. His body would be taken thence to the church in which he had wanted to be buried, being borne on the shoulders of his peers amidst a funeral pomp of candles and dirges. But, as the ferocity of the play began to mount, this practice all but disappeared entirely as replaced by different customs. For not only did people die without having many women about them, but a great number departed this life without anyone at all to witness their going. Few indeed were those to whom the lamentations and bitter tears of their relatives were accorded. On the contrary, more often than not, bereavement was the signal for laughter and witticisms and general jollification. But the Decameron goes beyond the horror of the plague. It tells of a group of young people who flee Florence to the countryside. They pass the time telling stories, 100 in all. They talk of human vices, tales of love, both happy and tragic, and the role of fortune versus human will. So it's kind of an escape from the plague into storytelling, which of course keeps your spirits up, because part of the work is to avoid not being completely depressed and overwhelmed by uh, the horrors of the plague. So it's a phenomenal testimony both to the suffering of the plague and how to recover from it through, through storytelling, through artwork, if you like. While Picacho was an adult when the Black Death began, Geoffrey Chaucer was only about five years old when the plague came to England. The plague is always there for Chaucer. Um, there's a passage, for example, in the Pardoner's Tale. Uh, it's a sort of allegorical tale where three drunken men in a pub have heard that death has been taking off lots of people and they decide to go in search of death, which, which is allegorical, of course. And they're sort of sitting in the pub in a rather drunken state and this boy explains to them what the clinking of a bell is and it's about a body being taken to church. And they said, you know, what's that all about? And the boy replies to them, but this is an old friend of yours and there come a privy theft men clepper death, that in this country all the people slayeth, and with his spear he smote his heart atwa, and went his way withouten word is more. He hath a thousand slain this pestilence. He has slain a thousand people in this time of plague. So that's the common experience that's appealed to there. A thousand people killed off, and death walks the land. So this, the pardoner's tale is like an allegorical version of experiencing plague. And then in other tales, for example, the Knight's Tale, you get um, a series of temples, the Temple of Mars and of Venus and of Diana, with their attributes. And then finally, we, we get a description of Saturn, which is the planet with the widest circuit. And he has various negative effects. And one of them is, me looking is the father of pestilence. So Saturn says, my gaze is the begetter of pestilence and plague which is to say the astrological conditions when Saturn is in the ascendant can lead to plague. So they thought that was one cause of plague, um, astrological, if you like. Yeah. So the plague is always there in Chaucer. Um, but also, I would say, it's there in the very joy of being alive, which I think is very Chaucerian. Today, we envision the people who lived in the Middle Ages and the Black Death as pretty grim and focused on gloomy themes. I think the opposite is true. Uh, that in a way, if you're in the middle of, of disaster and misery, you tend to focus on positive things. 
You tend to, uh, in World War II in England, Vera Lynn would sing about um, there'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover, right? even as the Nazis are dropping bombs on London. Uh, and I think the opening of the Canterbury Tales, which uh, the very end of that very long opening sentence on line 18, it talks about that God has helped them who were sick. One that April with his sure is certain, the drocht of merch had passed to the rota. And by the every vine in switch liqueur of which fair too, engendered is the floor. Whence ever as eke with his sweat a breath in spirit hath, in every halt and heath the tender crop is. And the youngest son hath in the ram his half a course on, and smaller fool is macken melodia, that slippin' all the nicht with open ear, so pricketh him natur in her courages, than longin' folk to go on, on pilgrimages. And parbreds for the second strongest strongest, the ferne halwes, calf in sondre londis, and specially from every shearer's end of England to Canterbury they wend, the holy blissful martyr for to seca, that him hath holpen when that they were seca. Right, so that's where they're going on pilgrimage. It's, you know, one that April with his sure is certain, the drocht of March appears to the rota. It's joyful, it's about natural regeneration and the coming of spring, the return of the seasons. And so it's actually a very positive opening, I think. This is what we need. And we'll take pleasure in simple things like sunshine um, and the birds singing and things like that, which we all understand since we've all been in lockdown. The great joy for many of us has been going out on our bikes or just going for a walk in the countryside. You know, that's been the great thing. Like the Decameron, the Canterbury Tales is set up as a series of stories. Storytelling obviously is a is a you know deep human impulse, isn't it? And a collective enterprise, I think. Look at the great um, old Icelandic sagas, for example. I mean, the, the, the winter goes on for so long in Iceland; uh, it's dark for months on end. And they produced these endless sagas about families that people know and locations that people know. And one person reads the manuscript, or maybe recites, because I think a lot of it starts with the recitation form before it gets written down. And other people listen, and I think that just simply carries on through the centuries. You carry the, the body of your culture through oral reperformance. Boccaccio thinks that uh, his writing to Cameron is going to help people, especially women, who have to stay indoors too much. And so this idea that you do amuse yourself by reading indoors, and I'm sure that probably went up, or reading aloud, one should say, because it only takes one person to read the, the book and other people listen to it. We don't know yet what forms of art are going to emerge after this pandemic, but I, I would imagine they will not be just focusing upon lockdown conditions. Uh, I don't think that'll happen right away. I mean, who wants to watch a lockdown uh, drama? I don't think so. Um, I think it'll be the great outdoors. It'll be, you know, sunshine and, uh, you know, positive themes. And I think there'll be a return to lockdown themes a bit later when we've gotten through this, if we ever get through it, when the pandemic has become endemic or whatever we want to call it. This time has been challenging for most of us, and Professor Wallace is no exception. My mother's in a nursing home in England. She's 94 years old, and they've got COVID in the, in the home, so nobody can visit. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of heartbreaking. And teaching has been a great challenge, but the students have been phenomenal. Their adaptivity has been amazing. One thing that's changed in my own teaching is I taught Dante last semester. I teach it again next semester, and last year was the 700th anniversary of Dante's death. And that was kind of spooky because I had to teach it online. And we were reduced to being kind of images of one another, kind of spectral images. 
And so then when we got to the afterlife, the inferno and the purgatorio, we met spectral beings. We met ourselves in funny ways, you know, uh, in a kind of weird, weird state. And so I think we understood Dante more appreciatively than ever before in that state. Uh, so there are certain things we have discovered through lockdown conditions. Yeah. Pandemics bring tragedy and hardship and change. But change has two faces. Workers can demand better conditions of labor. We reconsider how we do things and how we think. And artists create new ways of seeing and help regenerate society. I think that Chaucer is the first great poet of the modern English mother tongue, if you like. And that before Chaucer, uh, French was a more prestigious language and serious things were done in Latin. But uh, English becomes for him a language in which you can do all things. And this company is a sort of shift where the language of parliamentary debate switches from French into English, the language of law, even eventually the language of the coronation of the king. And so Chaucer has, has got the great advantage of being a first-generation poet. And there's a beautiful plasticity to Chaucer's verse, because he can try things, he can experiment with word orders and rhymes in ways that we can't today. If we write a line of poetry, we think we've done something original, and then we realise it sounds like Bob Dylan or it sounds like somebody else. There's always somebody on our back. Uh, but there's a joy in experimentation in Chaucer, which makes it very popular with modern poets, actually. Uh, modern poets love Chaucer. Lavinia Greenlaw said, reading Chaucer is like meeting the English language before the paint has dried. And many women are very inspired, often women of colour, by Chaucer, because there's something unsettled and in, uh, inchoate about Chaucer. Um, the Wife of Bath has become almost like a muse for modern women poets. And it, it does owe to the age he's in, I think, having survived the plague, right? And there is a big shake-up. Um, there's more social mobility than before. There's a joy in living. But there are also great challenges as well. I think it's an extraordinary period of time. It's no accident that the period of time produces Chaucer in, in, his way, in the same way that the 1580s uh, produced Shakespeare. Professor Wallace has found joy especially in his work and teaching. I think I've been buoyed up by my students, by their love of knowledge. And I, I think actually being a humanist scholar really helps as well. You get some historical perspective. You get some joy and enjoyment. And um, you see people trying to react to the pandemic, trying to react creatively to the pandemic and give expression to it as well. So that's been good. I mean, Zadie Smith wrote some really lovely reflections on the pandemic, some of the first that I found very helpful to read. Yeah. I'm a member of the, you know, the School of Arts and Sciences, and I think we respect the sciences because the sciences will get us out of the pandemic, but the arts have their role to play, that we can help our students digest what's going on, make sense of what's going on, connect them with texts from earlier times which are inspiring, that have been through what we're going through, but often in a more acute way, and also uh, enable the students to be creative themselves, to record their own experiences to think about their own ancestry, if you like, something I've been doing with my students. Who, I mean, Penn students are remarkable from all over the world and they just bring to us phenomenal richness. So for me as a teacher to notice what they're bringing to the classroom and devise ways of bringing that out, which has been such a great joy for me. So that's what I'd say. That wraps up the second episode of In These Times, the intricate riddle of life. Join us in two weeks for episode three, Tangled Up in Nature, 
where we'll talk to an expert on Shakespeare and early modern literature, who will discuss lessons from nature, or how writers from the past have found meaning in, and read meaning into, the natural world. The Omnia Podcast is a production of Pen Arts and Sciences. Special thanks to Judith H. Roden, Professor of English and Comparative Literature, David Wallace. I'm Alex Shine. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Omnia Podcast by Pen Arts and Sciences on Apple iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts to listen to every episode of In These Times, the intricate riddle of life. <laughs>